Hello, and a very warm welcome to The Roadmap, the tech law podcast from the commercial technology team here at Bristow's. My name's Rob Powell, and I'm an associate in the Bristow's technology team. Now, the Roadmap podcast centers on digital transformation projects. And in, in previous episodes, we've covered how and why they happen, how they can be managed, and how advisors can add value to them, uh, as well as taking a closer look at some of the technologies and processes that underpin these projects. Um, in, in other episodes, we'll be focusing on how to proactively ensure that your digital transformation is a success, um, both in, in terms of pre-contract management and also setting working cultures, as well as via practical contractual remedies, all in the aim of reducing the risk of ever getting to the stage where you bring a claim. But today we're taking the more kind of realistic view uh, at when tech projects do go wrong. And more importantly, uh, and perhaps slightly more positively, how in in our crafting of the contract, we can firstly minimize the risk of this happening, or if the worst does happen, at least ensure in the best possible position to bring a claim and perhaps even be compensated. Uh, our expert guest for today to discuss this topic is Anna Cook, uh, a partner in the technology litigation team here at Bristow's. Anna has a wealth of practical first-hand experience dealing with troubled tech projects and disputes in this area, and it is a pleasure to have her on the roadmap today. So how are you doing, Anna? Very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. No problem at all. Um, as I said, Anna, you you have a a real wealth of experience dealing with you know all manner of contractual disputes both in the IT sector and, and also elsewhere uh, you know covering major outsourcing deals software developments and beyond so i just want to start with the the question you know in, in your experience as a litigator which parts of an IT contract are, are most likely to give rise to a dispute between the parties and i guess why do you think that is the case so most disputes, most contractual disputes tend to arise if there's a section of the contract where some of the thinking has been neglected and maybe some of the drafting has been neglected because that's where you can see inconsistencies creeping into the drafting. Um, sometimes you see symptoms of drafting by committee, uh, missing services descriptions. Um, often you see descriptions that are just a direct lift from operational documents. Uh, And the problem with that is that you can end up with a private dictionary where only the people who have been involved in the minutiae of the commercial discussions are capable of understanding what what the words mean. Fundamentally, if you want to enforce a contract, you need to describe what was meant to have been delivered by where and to what standard as well as looking at price. Um, We often see contracts where price is minutely negotiated and service levels, but the basic service just isn't described. Yeah, I I think this is is so key to remember, you know, from my perspective as a transactional lawyer, I'm concerned with with drafting these agreements rather than litigating them. But I I think it's, it's so crucial, as you say, to have in mind from the beginning if things go wrong, where are the hooks on which I'm going to be able to hang a claim? And where is it going to be easiest and most clear to prove a breach? 
and as, as you're saying, you know, a clear service description is certainly going to be one of those areas because that is that is literally the, the the what what is being delivered. Yeah, and it's obviously difficult to draft a clear service description if the client hasn't really formed a conclusion about exactly what's going to be delivered. Um, the prevalence of iterative or agile methodologies means that the parties are often on a journey where the precise requirements are going to be defined. But in every case, there must be some background commercial document to justify the spend. And that document is likely to contain a service description, a functional description, and a description of what the party's aims are. And it's that level of detail, the kind of detail that you would put in a business plan or a business case to justify the money. Yeah. that That's what we often, you know, it's surprising, but we often don't see a plain language description of the requirements. And, and why do you think it is that, that these areas get neglected? You know, when they're, from an outside view, they're, clo- they're so clearly kind of fundamental to the project you know, literally the, the what of what is being delivered. Why, why do you think it is that, that they end up getting neglected in the actual kind of final signed contract? Well, I, I think there's always a lot of discussion about the epics, the user stories, and um, the real minute detail of what the system is capable of and what the technology can do. And we often see those sorts of, descriptions being incorporated in the contract, although they're very difficult to understand because they're not at the right level of detail. I get the idea that sometimes negotiators just run out of time or run out of steam when it comes to explaining the project, especially if they've got these complex, detailed documents to turn to. Uh, they're, They're often talking in terms which are entirely private, if they've been through a procurement or a tender, they've derived their own private dictionary. And so working, so, so you're actually asking them to draft a description that's got less detail than the documents that they've been working on up to now. Um, you do see service level mechanisms and governance regimes which can be extremely complicated to drive the right performance and escalations. Sometimes that creates the impression that all the energy has been put onto that and that there isn't time left or an appetite to just explain what's wanted in simple terms. Yeah. I think it's such a good point to, you know, to look at it kind of cold in the round at the end and as if you were giving this contract to, to someone reading it afresh and could they accurately and, and clearly summarize what what the project is and what you're trying to deliver? And and with that in mind, I guess as as a as a litigator, you know, l- looking at it through a slightly different lens, when a contract lands on your desk um, in, in relation to a dispute or otherwise, what what are the key areas of of the contract that you'll kind of look to first? Well, so this is my two minute open the contract and then yeah. go to a meeting without reading it properly. Yeah. This, this, this is this is what I'm describing. Yeah. Um, I like to look at the recitals. Um, if a contract has replaced an earlier agreement or an earlier system, it's useful to see that in the recitals. Sometimes you can put some quite clever things in them, 
but actually just a simple description of what the project's about is really helpful. I pay quite a lot of attention to the service descriptions and the standards, quickly checking what standards apply and who's responsible for what, and also whether there's a standards catalogue or more standards to think about or to look at. I check who's responsible for managing time and the implementation plan, and I'll try and figure out where the parties are up to in the implementation plan or where they should be up to if the yeah. plan has just been overtaken by events. Because I guess that that timing is is normally one of the, the key areas of dispute, right? That, you know, we are X months behind schedule because of Y. Yeah, exactly. Um, obviously, I have a look at the caps and the limits on liability, although I have to say that there's hardly any deviation between those clauses. So if that's just checking the extent to which the limits deviate from something normal. Um, I'll look at the termination rates. I'll check that there's a no waiver clause. And I'll look at the notices provisions to check that I don't have to find a fax machine. <laughs> um, so the caps on liability are usually really important for determining the initial strategy. Um, and I don't, I don't want to go kind of too legal uh, on the roadmap, which we, we try and kind of keep things as practical as possible. But I would like to quickly turn to the situation where you know a project has gone wrong. Um, say, for example, I'm a, I'm a customer. I've engaged a supplier to build and deliver me a brand new software system, uh, and they failed to do so. So it's a complete disaster. It's unusable. And when we're negotiating liability clauses we're thinking about what we could claim in such a situation, you know, where the worst has happened. And, and recent case law has kind of instructed us on this issue. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this, you know, what, what can a wronged party claim in the event of a breach? Um, and also before that, without making this, you know, t uh, kind of multi-pronged question, uh, perhaps you could give us a refresher on, on what we mean by claiming damages. So, the first thing is that debts are not damages, they're a promise of payment. So it's possible by incorporating mechanisms such as liquidated damages or indemnities to create debts in place of a damages claim. The advantage of having a debt in the agreement if you're a party trying to recover money is that you don't have the normal rules on mitigation of losses and remoteness of losses. You also need to watch out for debt claims if you're um, looking at a contract in a crisis situation to make sure that a debt hasn't become due, which might lead to a claim for breach of contract. So normally in commercial contracts, there's an exclusion of liability. So contract won't permit the recovery of damages for tort. But even if the contract is silent about tortious damages, the courts tend to take the view that if the parties have decided to regulate themselves with a contract, that's the bargain which is to be upheld. So bearing in mind there's been some tricky recent case law, it's worth being reminded that the remedy for tort is to put the injured party in the same position as if the tort had not happened. So it's a backwards-looking remedy, whereas the remedy for a breach of contract is forward-looking. It's to put the injured party in the same position as if the contract had been performed. So normal contractual damages 
are compensation for the loss of bargain. That means if there's a breach of contract for failure to provide a service, the damages are going to be the amount that would reasonably be paid for that service. If there's a breach for deficiency in performance, then the loss is going to be the value of the system which should have been delivered, less its market value, as a matter of fact. The loss might be the diminution in the value of the product or the cost of repairs. So if there are no limitations of liability, the injured party would also be entitled to further damages like lost efficiencies from not being able to use the system or lost sales. Normally, we don't think too hard about those further damages because normally they are just excluded. Mm-hmm. In IT services contracts, delay can often cost a lot of money too. Um, that's because the project team has to remain on foot and there are usually legacy systems that have to be maintained. Those losses tend to be actual spent costs. So that's slightly different to the more abstract exercise to analyse what the loss of bargain looks like. So those out-of-pocket costs are usually recoverable because they're part of the diminution in the value of the project and the value of the product that was caused by the breach. But when you analyse the value of the bargain that's been lost, you've always got to deduct the costs of performing the contract. So you have to deduct any savings made from not having to perform the contract and you have to deduct the price of the contract. In the context of a breach of a contract for the supply of software, an injured customer would not be entitled to get a system for free. Similarly, a supplier can't assume that it's going to recover its money in full without incurring the costs of performance. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky one to navigate. And I think w- with those issues in mind, it's understandable why the limitation of liability clauses and, and the kind of exclusions of liability uh, clauses are oft- often end up being the most heavily negotiated and certainly receive the most focus when drafting. I guess it's an example of a clause which probably receives equal focus um, or at least similar focus from transactional lawyers and, and also the litigators. Yeah, so when you have a dispute, you're always navigating the limitations of liability. So as I mentioned, it can actually be the driver of your strategy. Most limitations of liability clauses exclude loss of profits, loss of revenue and loss of savings. So those are the losses that are a consequence of you not getting the system or the contract that you hope for. Um, So that generally means that the only recoverable costs are the costs of cure to recover the diminution in the value of the system or the price of a fix or the costs of a replacement system. So wasted costs can form part of this loss claim if they represent the diminution in the value of the system. So, for example, if the customer is paying more than it bargained for to sustain its legacy systems. But when we talk about wasted costs, there's no sense in which the customer is getting its money back. Any calculation always deducts the cost of the performance of the contract. Yeah. So the exercise is always strictly a look-forward exercise, not a look-back one. And I think that this, this is really crucial as often, you know, clients that, that I've advised will be most concerned about the costs that they would incur internally in, in procuring that alternative solution. So, you know, where supplier A fails to deliver 
the customer has has to then spend a huge amount of time and money going back out to tender, selecting and engaging supplier B um, before we get to the actual cost supplier B is charging for, for, for the alternative solution itself. Um, so you can see how it easily becomes difficult to calculate what this kind of loss of bargain is. Um, and I guess there are many cases that don't fit neatly or clearly into this kind of lost profits model. Is, is, there, is there other ways that, that we can typically assess damages? So the loss of the bargain is always the way that the court will frame a contractual mm. loss analysis. So the first way of calculating the level of damages is to look at where you should be, where you would be if the contract was performed. If that's not possible, um, if it's not possible to calculate what the benefit of the contract would look like, which is really unusual, Mm. but sometimes the breach might contribute to a chain of events that prevent profit from being sensibly calculated. Sometimes the contract is for a product that won't generate profits or benefits in the normal way, like a a charity Mm. being compelled to buy a system. It is possible then to do a calculation on what's called the reliance basis. So although it's the same forward-looking exercise as the standard approach for calculating damages, the court substitutes the sums spent on the contract as a minimum threshold for the damages. So the, the court is effectively taking the sum spent and treating it as a minimal amount to substitute for a more complex theoretical claim. It's really rare. It's important to note that this approach can't be used to mitigate the effects of a bad bargain. For example, if the cost of the contract would actually have outweighed the gain and the breach has saved the customer or the supplier a whole load of money. Um, And there's a general rule that reliance losses can't exceed the amount that would be recovered on an expectation basis. On so on the traditional, more typical basis, I think I think that that one's just as as a kind of aside is is one to look out for when you see this kind of fairly template exclusion of loss of profits. Uh, and sometimes you look at the parties, and you know, as you say, one of them's a charity, or that you know, one of them's a, a kind of public sector entity where where profits aren't really relevant. So it's definitely one to look out for. Um, and I think one of the real kind of takeaway takeaways from this chat. You know, as a tech lawyer approaching these projects, you know, on the commercial side when you're drafting, is to ask yourself um, and the project team and stakeholders, you know, the question: if this project ultimately fails, what would we expect to be able to claim? Um, and a sensible approach is then to work backwards from there to ensure that the liability clauses don't prevent that, or, or even better, they kind of expressly anticipate that those losses will be recoverable. So instead of starting with the kind of standard conversations about the amount of caps and the standard exclusions, to try to steer these internal discussions and and then ultimately the negotiations with the other party towards basically everyone getting comfortable with with what losses are within the scope of recovery. So thank you very much, Anna. This um, has been a kind of really interesting chat, and it's great to get your your views and your experience of this and kind of looking at agreements through your lens as a litigator. So. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on the roadmap today. Thank you. Um, 
all that's left for me to say is uh, please do subscribe to this podcast um, on whichever platform you're using to ensure you automatically get the latest episodes as and when they are published. We really hope that this podcast will be useful for lawyers, um, procurement professionals, and also other business leads alike. And as ever, we'd love it to be as interactive as possible. So if you have a particular interest area or a topic you'd like us to cover, then please do get in touch with us at theroadmap at bristos.com or use the hashtag theroadmappod. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you very soon for our next episode on The Roadmap. <laughs>